This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Well, uh, I'm going to shift gears here. Uh, we've talked a little bit about cultural engagement and kind of the personal aspects of it and the way that can work and the way we think about culture. Um, let's talk a little bit about the media. You know, the media gets painted in a lot of different ways, and particularly there's a lot of discussion about things like media bias and that kind of thing. But I'm going to I'm going to share a, a feeling that I have uh, in my interactions with the media, and that is that uh, what I sense going on. I'll say it this way. I'd say about 95% of the interviews that I've done, I feel, have been done very professionally. Uh, the journalist carrying out their responsibilities is is doing what they see their job as being, which is uh, attempting to make sure that the various sides in a conversation are represented and presented before the public. And so, uh, and, and so they engage me, understanding that I represent one voice of several voices that they're responsible to put on the table. So what we sometimes perceive as media bias may actually be, if I can say it this way, a clash between what our expectations of the media might be and the way the media sees themselves in terms of what they do and are. Can you kind of sort that sure. tension out for us? Yeah, and I might even agree with you in the sense that a lot of what is oftentimes called media bias is media ignorance. Mm-hmm. Let's recognize that most of the interviews you and I have gone to, even in the Christian world, but certainly in the secular world, uh, are conducted by individuals who, let's be charitable, could not sign the doctrinal statement of Dallas Theological <laughs> Seminary. And as that, of as kind of a baseline, shows that maybe they don't know as much about the issue. Uh, when I was at Georgetown University, University. A friend of mine, Robert Lichter at George Washington University, along with Stanley Rothman, did a very extensive survey of people in the media elite, the people that determine what you read, see, and hear. ABC, NBC, CBS, Time, Newsweek, U.S. News and World Report, ABC, you know, all sorts of different groups in Washington Post, New York Times, on and on and on. And he found that, first of all, they were very liberal, no surprise there. But the point I want to make is 86% of them seldom or never attend religious services. In other mm-hmm. words, they're very secular. They don't go to church. They don't know people that go to church. And so as a result, as you would well be aware of, you oftentimes, if you go to a media interview, you really have to kind of explain things. That's I mean, right. you use a word like incarnation or the atonement. I mean, you might as well be talking a foreign language. That's they right. say, so you really have to understand that they're trying to be professional, but this, except for maybe a religion editor, mm-hmm. is really outside their comfort zone, outside of their uh, database. So that's the first issue. And so they will make statements, they will ask questions, they will, you know, spin it in a way that makes it feel a little more comfortable for them. But it isn't necessarily they're trying to do you harm. They're simply trying to feed the monster. They're basically every day trying to produce programs, and and you will occasionally have some people that are very articulate and do understand basic theology. But I think it's important to recognize sometimes it's not so much bias as it is ignorance. And as a result, maybe you just need to help 
explain a little bit. Cal Thomas one time told me about a woman that came in. I did an interview, and she said, are you an evangelical? And he said, well, what do you mean by that? And she says, well, you know. He says, well, I know, but I don't think you know. <laughs> it's a nice way of saying she'd heard the phrase, didn't have a clue as to what it meant, but wanted to use it in the interview. And so you have to sort of help them along. And I'm sure, Daryl, there have been times when you've sort of had to help people along to understand uh, why you had concerns about the Da Vinci Code, why you had concerns about a particular theological perspective. And so that's just part of the responsibility we have if we're going to be interviewed. I think some people just don't understand what a person who's in the media is actually doing most of the time. I mean, they are running from story to story. Uh, They've got deadlines. I mean, they've got drop-dead deadlines that are on top of them. They've got only so much time they can work on a story. They're, you know, one day they're at a fire, the next day they're at a robbery, the next day they may be covering a national story, and then boom, one day they're at a seminary. <laughs> and what's this all about? Exactly yeah. right. And so, and then you know they'll talk to you for a while, and only a small snippet. We'll talk about this in a second. Only a small snippet actually gets in because of the way they have to package it. But uh, my daughter studied journalism at Northwestern, so I have some familiarity for again on the media side and sensitivity. And what they're what I think they see their responsibility as. Tell me if you think this is fair. Their responsibility, at least if they are. Perf- Forming their job professionally is is to take an issue where at least the type of area where Christianity tends to walk in take an issue and then they're supposed to help people kind of like a mirror show the variety of positions that relate to whatever the topic is that's being addressed so so they have a limited amount of time they have a limited amount of expertise they have several voices that they have to squeeze into mm-hmm. that slot uh, to try and make sure that the various spots uh, positions are represented or at least that they're represented uh, fairly and accurately and then they've got to spin it around the commercials oftentimes that they have if they're on, te- on their television or radio so that your hour I tell people they don't realize this, that an hour show actually ends up being about 40 to 42 minutes of substance. Very true. Because, just because of the advertising. Mm-hmm. So take, now you've got your introduction, you've got your conclusion, that takes even more time, and watch that, watch that time window shrink. Um, and so that's what someone in the media is up against. They're working uh, oftentimes late into the night producing a show that has to be on at X uh, time. And so I really think there are, most people don't know what someone in the media is up against. Yeah. And that's the other part of it, too, is that they have to have something that's visually interesting if it's on television or somewhat slightly controversial if it's on radio or in print. So there are some other things that are being placed upon them as well. And it is difficult for them to pull it all together. Now, I would say for some of our viewers that if they're going to go into an interview, what you have to ask yourself, first of all, am I going into one where controversial Controversy is for controversy's sake. Right. I remember years ago when I was on the Ed Bush talk show, it was very obvious he had me on there as the, the Christian representative because he wanted to create a lot of controversy. And if you go on with Bill Maher these days and things like that, mm-hmm. those programs are intended to be controversial. And I remember Ed Bush was frustrated we weren't getting enough phone calls, so he goes right to the exclusivity of Christ, you Uh know, how you people believe that only Christians are saved. Uh, He was creating that. But for every one of those, there are hundreds of others that are just simply trying to do their job. They're They're trying to, in as fair a way as they can understand it, 
present kind of a point counterpoint or a couple of different viewpoints. So it's important to recognize whether you're being set up or whether or not a person is just really trying to do that. And if you're just simply trying to explain that, anything you can do to help them would be uh, certainly a good thing. The other point is recognize that some come with a lot of preparation and some with very little. Uh, you've probably been on a few shows where, tell me, Daryl, is it Bach? Okay, uh, who is Jesus? Okay, tell me, Daryl, who is Jesus? You know, yeah, right. you get those kind of interviews. And you got others where they basically have uh, surveyed every article you've ever written. They've got a research associate. Albert and, Schweitzer on yeah, page 253. And, and you're like, whoa. <laughs> and so you need to understand that's something as well. The major media, the national media, probably will have a research assistant, which will suggest possible questions, possible topics, uh, maybe even background and do a lot more digging. The local talk show host, probably not. So it varies from place to place. But once you understand that, you recognize that some things which are labeled as bias are simply ignorance or lack of preparation. And so you can't really flaw them for that. And you just need to do the best job you can to help them understand what's yeah, taking place. Oftentimes the reporter is scrambling. I mean, they're sure. scrambling to get located into the question that they're – and it's one of you know 15 stories they may do that mm-hmm. week. Mm-hmm. So it, it's I, – I, I have a sympathy for uh, having been around it, have a sympathy for what it is media attempts to do. And obviously some people do it better than others, but, but it still is it, – it's a very demanding kind of, uh, sure. uh, of discipline that they're, they're undertaking. I, I like to tell this story. Um, I, I once did I, – in the midst of uh, – I think it was the controversy around the movie The Passion Mel Gibson produced. I was flown up to ABC, and I had reacted earlier by letter to a special they had done, Peter Jennings had done, on Jesus. And I went up there and did – was part of an interview of a panel. Of course, I was the evangelical conservative representative, and there was, uh, there was a Jewish person, a liberal person, and a secular person on the panel. And we went through and did the thing on the movie. And I think I had all of maybe 45 seconds uh, of, of airtime, of FaceTime in terms of what I actually got to say that when they finally edited it, even though we filmed for almost 45 minutes. And – but that wasn't the most important thing that happened on that trip. The more important thing that happened on that trip is that I met for an hour and a half with four top people at ABC to discuss the ABC special that they did on Jesus and to do, in effect, background for them on evangelicalism in, in America. And ta- I had criticized them for not interviewing the right kinds of people and not not approaching – not getting – you know our slice of 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 the of being at the table right, and that I thought I could help them do that, and so we went through this long discussion about evangelicalism in America and how it worked, and and I said you've got to get out of the northeastern bubble because the South is very different than the Northeast, and the Midwest is even different than both of those, and the West Coast is kind of its own deal, and so <laughs> um, et cetera, and and to their credit, uh, they responded, and 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 it actually that. Hour and a half conversation has resulted in a ongoing ten-year relationship that I've had with them, in which when they move now to do specials in certain areas where evangelicalism is involved, I'll get an email or I'll get a call, and they'll say, "Daryl, this is the topic. This is what we're thinking about doing with it. Uh, who do you think has the expertise that we should talk to?" And that's exactly the way it ought to work. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. 
how did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Yeah, I did the very same thing and a number of years ago. Now, this goes back quite a bit, but uh, many of our viewers might remember Nightline with Ted Koppel. And I've always thought Ted Koppel is one of the most fair people I've ever been around. But it's one true. time he put together kind of a point counterpoint on origins, and he had Carl Sagan, Ph.D., mm-hmm. astrophysics in Cornell, and James Robison, a uh, mm-hmm. local pastor. Right. Um, and I'm uh, so I thought this, this is not right. <laughs> exactly. So I put together a letter that explained who some of the really articulate people on the idea of intelligent design were and had all sorts of different people sign it and everybody that signed it had either a master's degree or a PhD in the area of science and sent it to Ted Koppel uh, was well received and the next time they did kind of a point counterpoint on origins they had Harold Morowitz who was one of my professors at Yale in a PhD biochemistry and Dwayne Gish mm-hmm. with the Institute for Creation Research PhD University of California Berkeley in molecular biology and that seemed very fair and so, again, it maybe illustrates, Daryl, the point. They are living in a bubble, as you just pointed out. They know certain people, but when it's like, oh, evangelicals. Well, I've heard of James Robison. I've heard of Jerry Falwell. Uh, now, of course, they know people like Daryl Bach and others, and you're getting a much more uh, significant selection of people that show up on those programs. But it isn't necessarily that they were trying to necessarily make Christians look like dummies, although maybe one of the editors did, but they just simply didn't know where to go and who to find. In the old days, we used to say, what's on your Rolodex? Exactly right. What's on your computer or Mm -hmm. your uh, contact sheet? And when we can help them find those individuals, I think it's a better program for them, and it's much more honest interchange. Yeah, I think if you put the two things together that we've just talked about, when you look at the sequencing of of how many shows a person is doing, that Rolodex really does – I mean, they're, they're they're pressed for time. Uh, they're going to go to someone that they know uh, once their name, once that name's in the Rolodex, and they feel like, and, and they also have to assess: Does this person interview well? I mean, that's a good point. And so, yeah. and, and so, when they put that all together, they they go back to the they go back to the same names. And so, the it's interesting that you use that expression because my expression is, has been after I've done an interview, someone has said to me, "Well, you've gone onto my Rolodex," yeah. and so, um, and so that's what happens. And so then they come back to you. It's funny that the the ABC one of the things I can complained about at ABC on the Jesus special that they did with Peter Jennings is, here you put all these articulate scholars who teach in the universities and have studied Jesus all their life, and who were the two evangelical counters that you had in that show? You had a Louisiana pastor who took his group to Israel on the one hand, and then you had, at the very end, briefly, although you did give him almost a final word, Tom Wright. And that was it. 
yeah. and I and I said I think you 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 could do better. So it's uh, it is it that's exactly the kind of thing that happens. Here's here's another example of the type of thing that sometimes happens, and and this is interesting. This is another kind of personal example. I once did a show in relationship to Gnostic Christianity and Gnosticism, and they sent me the script that they were working on and was to show me kind of where I was going to be slotted, which actually was pretty nice. And sometimes you don't. You don't. Yeah. They just interview you. You don't even know where, don't where the show's going yeah. or anything. And she walked through it, and, and and when I saw it, I wrote her back and I said, "Well, you really only have one half of the story." Uh, and so when you come to interview me, I'm going to try and tell you the other half. And and we again, it was one of those things where we talked for a long time off camera before she ever filmed me. Mm-hmm. And then we got on camera and we and we did the filming. And the way she handled it was really clever because for about three quarters of the story, what she did is she told the story she had in her original script, which was about the diversity of early Christianity and that Gnostic Christianity was one of the, one of the things that's happening in the set in the universities all over the place all the time on this topic. And then about three-quarters of the way, she turns it, and she turned it into, but there's another half to this story. And then I have a line that I've used in this particular debate a lot uh, in which I say the, the line that you often get is, well, history's written by the winners. And so the argument is, well, we only know about Christianity what Orthodox Christianity wants to tell us. That's kind of the gist of that line. But there actually was a much bigger, much more complex story out there, a much more diverse story full of alternative Christianity, that kind of thing. Uh, and then my comeback line is, um, yes, history's written by the winners but sometimes the winners deserve to win. <laughs> and, and what I did on the film was to explain why it is that you can trace the roots of Christianity, Orthodox Christianity, back to Jesus and the apostles, and these other groups can't you can't do that with them. You can't get back that far. So she, when she did this turn at the end, the last line on the program was this line of uh, history's written by the winners, but sometimes the winners deserve to win. And I got a note from Marvin Meyer. Now you know who Marvin Meyer is. Sure he does do. a writer, right? a lot of writing on Gnosticism and sure. has translated a lot of those texts. And um, dear guy just passed away. And uh, uh, we've had. Exchanges. We've often been on sides of the show, and he sent me an email, and he said, "Daryl, you fox, you got that line in there, <laughs> and it and it capped off the show." Sure. Which, and, but what that shows, the reason I'm using this illustration, it shows the way in which some of the engagement that you have isn't what people see on the, on the television. It's the conversations that you have. Very well said. Back behind mm-hmm. the scenes and the relationships that you build and the trust that you build that then allows them to take what you say and say, all right, I'm not, I just don't have you on camera for the 30 seconds or 45 seconds that I'm going to use you, but I'm actually interacting with what it is, and you're helping me get located in this area. And this is something else I might pass on to some of our viewers. If you're do, First of all, I like to do live because I know they're not going to edit me, but uh, many times I'm taped for various films. I've done some of these DVD films and things like that. Uh, Sometimes in the middle of the interview, I'll say, you know, a better question might be da 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 da, da and then have them do that because since it is taped, we can pull that out. And um, if if you have an individual that is really uptight or insecure, that doesn't work very well. But most of them are looking for help because they know that you are suggesting the best question or the best comment. And then to put it bluntly, that's where you can ask them to ask you a question that goes on the screen, and then you have your zinger you have you know, whatever 
it might be, your good line. Yeah. Uh, and that's one they're looking for because that's golden. If you've that's got right. A, if you've got a, an ability to turn a phrase, and there are some people that are really good at that. Uh, Gary Bauer, for example, used to be with Family Research Council, one of the best in the business. But there are many other people that are really good at turning a phrase. Sometimes they just cannot help themselves. Even if they don't like what you said, they just like the fact that it sounds so good. And that line that you just used a minute ago, sometimes the winners deserve to win. Uh, you know that's going to be in the final edit. So sometimes when you're in front of a taping situation, you can stop and suggest a question or say, that's a good question, but here's another one you might want to ask. And they're quite willing usually to take some of that direction. And then you, in a sense, have a little control over the interview. And in fact, at the, almost at the end of every interview I ever do, the, the question that comes last is, is there anything that yes. I haven't asked you that I should, should ask, you? ask you? Yes. And, the, and, and so there's always uh, this um, opportunity to 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 step in, and I, I think you've made another point that's important, and that is there's a lot of difference between doing a live response and doing one that's taped. Um, those are two different uh, scenarios that you have to work through when you're when you're actually uh, doing the interviews. Another thing that I think is important is it's it's important, particularly for uh, for what I would call short term media, and by that I, that can be television or radio where you're in a limited crunch time, mm-hmm. you don't have a lot of time. They're going to only talk about your topic for six minutes or whatever it is. Uh, it's important to be crisp. Yeah, and I was just going to say that too because what you have to ask yourself the question is what is going to be the final product if you're doing, say, a morning show on a Christian radio station or even a secular station? Because I've done NPR, I know you have mm-hmm. as well. You know it's going to be real quick. Now, every once in a while, since I will oftentimes bring a guest in for an hour, or the other day I had Ron Rhodes on for two hours on a book, and boy, authors wow. love that when you give them two full. <laughs> hours did he read really, the whole book to you yeah <laughs> but, but we go to we go off uh, off the book as well because you know when i've got right. people as talented as you or others you know i'll give them an hour or two hours i'll have some people deli- if you will dump the whole load of hay in the first uh, segment and i'm going we've got you know seven more segments coming up here right you know so recognize that in a morning show or a short interview you really do have to get to the point even if the question is off target you have to get to the point that you want to make and mm-hmm. ask yourself if I only could make two or three points, it's basically homiletics 101, isn't right, it? Exactly. You know, what I want to say. But if you have a little more time, you can kind of build your case. And so I think recognize the difference between a short format and a long format. I've also said that everybody has a story, but not everybody's story lasts two hours. You know, some people's <laughs> stories told in 15 minutes. That's and so right. understand as well that you really maybe have a short testimony. You're just going to give an answer to something happened in the school board or talk about some aspect of cultural engagement. Maybe you can do that in five minutes. And don't be offended that after five minutes they say, thank you, and move on. Join us next week for part three of the Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife, especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.